I am Professor Tullio Treves, teaching international law at the University of Milano. I have had the good fortune in my life to be involved in the development of the Law of the Sea Convention from the beginnings at the Caracas session of the Third UN Conference back in 74 to the moment of signature and to the work that came afterwards up to entry into force. I later was a judge in the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea from its inception in 1096 up to a few months ago in March 2012. Uh, so I had the pleasure and the emotion to be present here in New York almost exactly 30 years ago when the final vote was taken on the text of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. I later, a few months later in December of that year, I was present at the opening to signature of the convention in Montego Bay, Jamaica on the 10th of December of 1994. 1982, I'm sorry. I was also, uh, I also accompanied the ambassador of Italy to sign the convention in December 1994 in the legal office of the United Nations in New York. So uh, the 30th anniversary of the opening to signature of the UN Convention uh, is a very important uh, step in the development of the law of the sea in general and of international law uh, also. It is also an important um, moment for my professional career and this uh, shows, uh, explains perhaps why uh, the legal office has asked me to uh, make uh, this presentation. We are now celebrating the 30th anniversary to the opening to signature of this document on which we will say a lot during these lectures. Uh, still, as in any treaty, the opening of the signature is just part of the story. In the case of the Law of the Sea Convention, 12 years had to elapse between opening to signature and entry into force. This happened only in November 1994. So there was a long route from opening to signature to the time where states were confident enough to bind themselves to this treaty as a treaty. And perhaps there was good reason for that in light of the importance of uh, this convention. States have had to think about it be to become convinced of making the step of becoming bound. But I think all those who did it, and they are the great majority of the states of the world, did it for good cause. We can say that 
the Law of the Sea Convention of 10 December 1982, the UN Law of the Sea Convention on the Law of the Sea, is a watershed in eras in the development of the Law of the Sea. And I would say between the era of codification and the era of post-codification. If you look backwards, uh, you see that the international law of the sea developed slowly for, century, for centuries as customary international law. Then there was a time in which states thought it was important to transform these customary-based branch of the law into a codified branch of the law, to put what was the contents of customary law into written texts having the legal nature of conventions. And this concentrated in relatively few years, between the 50s and the, entering to, and the opening to signature of the Law of the Sea Convention. And since then, almost 30, 30 years have elapsed and we are well into the post-codification era. We can say, by way of a very introductory assessment, that the UN Law of the Sea Convention uh, is at the same time a sum of achievements of the Law of the Sea and the basis, the starting point for future developments. It is a sum of achievements because it includes in written form all the results of centuries-long customary development of international law. And through the written form, through the fact that it is a binding treaty, it has also added a lot of detail, a lot of uh, new elements on which we will uh, deal in detail later. Still, being now a, an almost generally accepted text that binds most countries, it can also be seen as the starting point for new developments. New developments that may have to do with new problems that arise or with new needs that arise uh, on old problems. On this we will come back. I would like now, having uh, said these few things by way of introduction, to have with you a short exam of the development of international law up to the adoption of the Law of the Sea Convention in 1982. Uh, we can observe that the Law of the Sea is a very ancient branch of international law. Its founding father uh, can be said to be the famous Dutch jurist, jurist of the 17th century, Hugo Grotius in the Latin version, or Hugo van der Groot in the 
Dutch pronunciation, if my pronunciation is acceptable to the Dutch uh, native speakers. And Hugo Grosso wrote a small booklet called De Mare Liberum, on the free sea, which is seen as the beginning of the law of the sea. But as you all know, he also wrote uh, a book on the, the law of war and peace, which is seen as the beginning of international law in general. So this branch of international law has the same father as international law in general. And it is an ancient uh, story, a story that comes from far away, centuries away. Uh, as a branch of international law, the law of the sea is perhaps more than other branches, sensitive to the evolution of the environment against it. The law of the sea is very sensitive to development in economics, in strategy, in politics, as well as in science and technology. In the early days, the main concerns of states as far as the sea was concerned was to use it as a means for communication with other states. You navigated, you went to other states through the sea and in a minor way as a, a resource a source through fishing in a very narrow band of sea near the coast where the uh, fishermen at that time uh, could dare to go. It was also seen, however, the sea as the place from which the enemies could come. And so security concerns were there from the beginning. And in this framework, it's easily to explain that the old law of the sea was based, in fact, on two very simple rules, that the coastal state would exercise sovereignty or absolute rights in a very narrow band of seas near the coast, even though the measure of this very narrow band, which we now call territorial sea, was never totally agreed between states. And then beyond that, there were, there were the huge expanses of water, the so-called high seas, where every state could navigate and do whatever it wished, provided that it did not interfere with the same activities by all the states. But as a matter of fact, the seas were huge and the ability of men to work in it was very, very limited. Uh, in more recent times, and I'm jumping to the last century, 1900s, uh, the development of technology and economics had also a big influence. Uh, technology permitted to fish very far from the coast and the need to get 
hydrocarbons, gas and oil uh, from wherever it was possible had as a result that hydrocarbons started to be sought and found on the bed of the sea every year further and deeper away from the coast. And so the idea that some form of control on the resources of the seabed adjacent to the coast started to develop, especially starting in 1945 with the Truman Proclamation and in 46 with the agreement between the United Kingdom as the sovereign of Trinidad and Tobago, which was not independent at the time, and Venezuela for the division of the Gulf of Paria, which was a shallow, oil-rich part of the sea. But another important development came, was of more political nature, namely when many, many territories that used to be colonies or protectorate of European states became independent during a very short time in the 60s of last century. This changed the balance, the numerical balance of the international community and views that had started to be put forward in the 50s by some South American state facing the Pacific, Chile, Ecuador, Peru, Colombia, uh, and according to which the coastal states should exercise control of the resources, not of a narrow band of seas, but of a broad band, uh, maybe up to 200 miles from the coast. They were seen at that time as a bit odd, a bit uh, incompatible with what everybody thought. But once many states became independent in the 60s, this minority view became a majority view, and it came to be accepted even by those bigger Western or then socialist uh, state powers that were very skeptical or even uh, against it. So the law of the sea adapts to changes in economics, in politics, in technology. And this, of course, uh, has as an effect that the customary rules may adapt, but they may not be as detailed as it is um, preferable for a branch of law that has to take into account a great variety of activities. And perhaps we can stop for a second to consider what kinds of activities are conducted at sea uh, in the past and now. In the past, there were practically two main activities. Navigation, you use the sea to go to some other state, and fishing. And a variant of navigation was military navigation. You go at sea to fight the enemy, you stay at sea with your navy to protect yourself from the enemy. And that was all. 
but now we have many more activities that are conducted at sea. First of all, the uh, activities connected with the mineral resources of the seabed. A, a huge percentage of the oil and gas uh, that is consumed in the world comes from the seabed near or not so near from the coast. And this means that you have to drill the seabed to find the oil. Once you have found it, you have to put in platforms, pipelines, lot of cables, lot of vessels going um, in and out of the platforms. But then you have also another kind of activity, science. Uh, the ocean covers two-thirds of the surface of the Earth and it is mostly unexplored territory. It's very difficult to know what happens under the vast expanses of the sea. And scientists, of course, are very active in doing so. They have already obtained a lot of interesting results, but there is still a huge work to be done. And they do it in many ways, including navigating with special vessels, marine scientific vessels, and take samples from the seabed, doing um, eco work with uh, sound and many other things, measuring currents, measuring temperature, and looking for new forms of life on the seabed. We'll come back to that. So there is a lot of scientific activity. This is completely new as compared to 200 years ago, but in quantitative term, it's many, many more times as important now than it was just 20 years ago or 40 years ago. And apart from um, another important activity on the seabed is the laying of cables and of pipelines. The pipelines, of course, move the gas, move the oil from the sources to the ports or to consumers, but the laying of cables, which has been going on now for almost a hundred years, but has become very, very important in the age of the internet. When the tsunami struck in the Southeast Asia a few years ago, the first thing people noticed all around the world was that internet was cut from this world. And, uh, and of course, telegrams, telephone conversations. They can go also through satellite, but in quantitative term, the cables are still the most important means for transporting information. And this is a new activity that requires special vessels, special precaution, and so on. And of course, one could uh, go on listing uh, many new activities, um, but perhaps we should just say that all these new activities call for a more specific and detailed law of the sea. And this is why uh, nations started quite early to think at reducing the law of the sea to a written text. Uh, during the age of the time of the uh, League of Nations, in the 20s and 30s of last century, 
a big attempt was done to codify international law. It was a bit naive attempt because it was thought that with the conference of a few weeks in The Hague, the whole of international law would be reduced to a book. Now we know that this was still now an illusion, but was even more so an illusion more than a hundred years, uh, almost a hundred years ago. And also the law of the sea was part of this first attempt at codification. No visible result came out of the conference convened by the League of Nations in 1930 at The Hague. Still, the preparatory work for this effort, the questions put by experts to states, and even more so the answers by states to this question, are still now one of the most precious collection of state practice uh, that we can consult. And indeed, a lot of that effort, remote effort, is now incorporated in the Law of the Sea Convention. Uh, so in the 30s there was this apparently unsuccessful effort. After the Second World War, when the United Nations were established, the idea of codification and progressive development of international law became even a part of the UN Charter. And the body designated to be at the center of this effort, namely the United Nations International Law Commission, uh, from the beginning enlisting the issues ripe for codification in their opinion, uh, say that the law of the sea was one of the top priority. And so the commission designated a special rapporteur and prepared a draft convention on the law of the sea, which was submitted to a codification convention a diplomatic convention convened in Geneva in April 1958. Out of this conference the, came out not one convention on the law of the sea corresponding to the one draft prepared by the International Law Commission. The result were four conventions and an optional protocol. The four conventions concerned the territorial sea and the contiguous zone, the high seas, the continental shelf, and the living resources of the high seas. The optional protocol was about this settlement of dispute. Why four? Why five? Not one. Well, this has to do with diplomacy and with the desire to have as a broadly acceptable result as possible. There were some states that had strong objections to a few provisions in the draft prepared by the Law of the Sea Convention or resulting from the conference, from the, uh, I'm sorry, from the International Law Commission's draft or from the discussions in the conference. But the, these objections were in certain cases such that they 
could have caused lack of ratification by the concerned state. The state could say, I like the, the Convention on the Law of the Sea, but I don't like Article 100. And for these reasons, I will not ratify it. In order to avoid this situation, and also in order to avoid um, the adoption of a provision permitting reservations, it was decided that it was the best thing to do was to cut in four pieces the convention so that the states could ratify three out of four, two out of four, one out of four, but hopefully uh, some parts of it, if not all. And this is why we had four for separate convention plus an optional protocol. This, of course, was not, let's say, a great success. It was a drawback of the codification process in 58. Everybody recognized even then that the, that the law of the sea is a whole, that all aspects of the law of the sea are interconnected. And this is what, in fact, I'm quoting almost uh, literally the preamble of the new Law of the Sea Convention in 58, in, uh, of 82. In fact, uh, the Geneva Conventions uh, had a great importance, but were a rather ephemeral uh, phenomenon. They had a great importance because for the first time the customary law of the sea was codified, namely put in writing in the form of a binding convention, of course binding for those who were to ratify it or to accede to it. And it also it was important because it added a lot of detail to many aspects of the law of the sea. On top of that, it had the, it was important because it introduced in written form a phenomenon that was just quickly development, developing in the decade before Geneva, namely the continental shelf. The sovereign rights of states on the resources of the seabed in an area of the seabed outside the territorial sea and with certain limits, with, but which was the area where oil and gas deposits were to be found, was proclaimed by a few states in the 40s, but in 58 was almost becoming customary law. The mere fact that the Geneva Conference decided to adopt a convention on the continental shelf, permitted this inchoate customary law to become not only codified law but also customary law. The phenomenon of crystallizing customary law that the International Court of Justice mentioned a few years later in the continental shelf cases in 69, in fact took place with the codification uh, of the continental shelf in 58. Still, uh, I would say, uh, I was saying, uh, 
not everything was uh, perfect. One main issue was not decided upon because of divergences of views between states. And this was the breadth of the territorial sea. Was some states thought that 12 miles would be the right, the, the right breadth. Others insisted on three miles. The intermediate position of six miles had its supporters, but no majority could be reached on any of these three positions. And a new conference was convened in 1960 just to deal with its subject, but it was unsuccessful. So the Geneva Convention had this huge lacuna. How broad is the territorial sea? There seemed to be a general agreement that territorial seas of more than 200 miles were out of international law, even though some states, especially in the Pacific uh, part of, the, of South America, insisted on maritime domains that were very similar in nature of, to a territorial sea, but had a width of 200 miles. But these were, as I mentioned before, a minority. But between the 3 miles, 6 miles, 12 miles, no agreement was possible. The Geneva Conventions, Conventions lasted as the main text for a relatively short time least with hindsight from now. Uh, they, became in, they came into force in the 60s, between 64 and 66, depending on the convention, for a limited number of states. But when they were beginning to come into force, they were already, in a way, obsolete. Because in the 60s, so many new states became independent. And the uh, view on the law of the sea uh, was quite different than the most broadly view held during the Geneva Conference. In particular, they, a new majority of states felt that the interest of the coastal state to have full control of the resources in the waters adjacent to its coast for in a space much broader than the three, six or twelve miles territorial sea was the top priority. These states were as a majority relatively poor states. They of course they understood the importance of navigation they understood much less the importance of projecting power through uh, military force at sea. They were perhaps more keen on avoiding that others projected their powers on them, but especially they looked with uh, great concern at foreign fishing vessels or fleets fishing in waters relatively near to their coast and not relatively but really far away from their port of departure. And so it was for instance that the famous episode of the um, Onassis 
fishing fleet uh, fishing in the waters of Peru that was captured and seized by the Peruvian uh, military vessels for fishing in an area of 200 miles claimed by, by Peru. At that time, this was something uh, that not every country thought as perfectly legal. But this was the new vision that brought about uh, the lack of ratification of the law of the sea conventions of Geneva, or at least some of them, by most of the new states, and the starting of discussions for a new codification. And this came out about in the 70s, when the Geneva Convention had entered into force just a few, few years before, or even at the same time. So in the, in the late 60s, there was already a lot of discussion on redoing the codification of the law of the sea. And the reasons came from two disparate directions. The first I've just mentioned, the need and desire of the new majority of coastal states, mostly former dependent territories, now new independent nations, to get full control of the resources of wide expanses of sea adjacent to their coast. But second, there was a more, I would say, less egoistical, uh, less selfish, perhaps, um, view. And this came about in the United Nations General Assembly in 1967 when the, the ambassador at that time of Malta, Arvid Pardo, made to the General Assembly a very long speech. If you look at the procès verbaux of the minutes of the General Assembly, it occupies more than a hundred pages and covers two full sessions two full meetings of the General Assembly. I don't think that with present regulations anybody would be allowed to speak for, for two full sessions, but 40 years ago it was possible, or 50 years ago it was possible. And if you look at this, well, the gist is Ambassador Pardo had uh, learned that certain polymetallic nodules had been found on the seabed, very deep, far away from the coast, and that these uh, polymetallic nodules, kind of potato-shaped concretions that lay on, on the bed, not on the, the bed, you don't have to excavate them, uh, contained important, proportionately important quantity of metals such as nickel, manganese, cobalt and others. And he said, well, these resources are far away. They are, not, uh, they are in areas beyond the limits of national jurisdiction. They should be exploited for the benefit of mankind as a whole. They are the common heritage of mankind. So he started 
to use this expression, which he didn't really invent, but he popularized it. Um, and the United Nations should develop some form, some legal form, to ensure that these resources are exploited for the benefit of all. Of course, at that time, one didn't even know what one meant when one said beyond the limits of national jurisdiction. One didn't even know much of where these uh, nodules were located, but still his prophet-like um, speech struck the minds of delegates and a process was started establishing first a restricted committee of the General Assembly, whose name was longer than the list of participants, but which in short was called the Seabed Committee, which had to develop and give some form to the uh, ideas put forward by Ambassador Pato. Of course, this was still very independent from the push for the 200 miles. But through the discussions at the Seabed Committee, which soon was enlarged to become an open-ended committee, and at one point in 72, more or less, uh, it, was, it became clear that the questions concerning the nodules, the common heritage, could not be separated for the rest of the lobby. First of all, how can you deal with mineral resources beyond the limits of national jurisdiction if you don't know where the limits of national jurisdiction are? And there were strong pushes for extending national jurisdiction beyond 200 miles. And all this brought about as a result that the Seabed Committee saw its mandate enlarged and transformed into that of a preparatory committee for a third United Nations Conference on the Law of the Sea. And so the seabed mining problem became just the chapter of the program of work of the future conference. At the end of the activity of the Seabed Committee, everybody hoped, looking at precedent, that there would be a draft convention on the law of the sea that would be the basic text on which negotiations at the diplomatic conference would take place. But this was not to be. The preparatory committee or the seabed, transformed seabed committee produced a list of 96 subjects for discussion, the kind of index of the possible future convention, plus seven volumes of a report which included all the papers that had been put forward, including and so the most disparate view on most of the 96 subjects. Some of the 96 subjects were just in contradiction with each other, because the usual technique of the UN is if you cannot 
agree on something. We, you put both on the same paper and then you will see. And this was done also in this case. At the end, it was decided that even without the basic text, a conference had to be held. It was decided that it would be started by a short organizational meeting at the margin of the General Assembly in December 1973 and that it would continue at Santiago de Chile in the summer of 1974. As a matter of fact, the organizational meeting, which is officially the first session of the Law of the Sea Convention, took place and some, but not all, organizational problems were solved. Then um, the Pinochet coup happened in Chile and states didn't think it would be an acceptable idea to hold a huge codification conference in a country that had was submitted to a coup d'etat just a few months before. Venezuela offered Caracas as an alternative and the convention, the conference, the third UN conference started its substantive work in the summer of 74 in Caracas, Venezuela. The program was for a 12-week conference, namely an unprecedented length for a codification convention. Everybody recognized that the task was huge, but also thought that 12 weeks were enough to produce a, a, a convention. Of course, this was naive once again. In fact, it didn't take 12 weeks, but 10 years or nine years. The, con the convention was adopted in 1982 after, I think, 12 sessions sometimes divided in two subsessions in the spring and in the summer in Geneva first and, and New York later and then New York and Geneva in the later years. An unprecedented number of weeks, of months, of hours of work engaged, I would say, one or two generations of lawyers and lawyers, diplomats from all states. There was a full generation of legal experts that developed their skills in the Law of the Sea Convention uh, negotiation from all countries. They were, of course, sometimes adversaries, but certainly a common understanding of many things came about through this convention, uh, to, the, to the Law of the Sea Convention, and this shows in later years, when these people met on the different functions, they had a common language, a common experience. And this was particularly important, I would say, especially in the early years of the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea, where most of the judges elected at the beginning of this body had had together the experience in different functions. Some were uh, um, heads of delegations, other were more humble members of delegations, other were working with the UN, other were observers, but still they had all, all had this experience and this helped very much to 
develop a common way of seeing things in the Law of the Sea Tribunal, as in other um, UN and uh, judiciary bodies. The third UN Law of the Sea conference was, as I just mentioned, of unprecedented length and complexity. It was characterized by a deployment of ingenuity uh, on the procedural side, because there was indeed a set of rules of procedure, but no delegates kept them in their pockets. They, and even less so in their minds, they invented new procedures for the needs of the case. And the needs were very special. It was recognized that the four conventions of Geneva were a mistake because they were four. That the, one should produce one unified convention and that this should aim at being a universal convention with the same rules from, for everybody and so with no possibilities of reservations. This entailed, from the procedural point of view, that consensus had to be the basic rules of decision-making. And consensus doesn't mean exactly unanimity, but still means non-objection. Still means that states consider that it's better to have the convention than not to have it, even though they might not be happy with one or two or three uh, rules. All this is possible, but very time-consuming. And lots of procedural devices were developed to make it possible to move towards consensus. I will not make a list, but I'll just mention one. One was the main procedural device invented at the convention were the so-called informal negotiating texts. The officials of the convention, the chairman of the main committees and the president of the convention, starting with the 75 session, would prepare a text of the convention under their own personal responsibility, including what in their view was already agreed and what in their view was the most likely thing to be agreed in the future or the most advisable thing to put in the convention. This has as an effect that the whole negotiation concentrated on these negotiating texts. All the seven volumes of proposals were thrown in the basket. And the negotiations were just to change or confirm what was written in these negotiating texts, which evolved year after year from negotiating text into partly or mostly negotiated text, until at the end they became a draft convention submitted to, which ho everybody hoped to be adopted by consensus. But this, in fact, did not happen. In the United States there was an important change political change in 1980 with the election of President Reagan. President Reagan uh, decided that the Law of the Sea negotiation was 
the most visible example of what he didn't like in the United Nations and in uh, international politics. So he said, well, we'll continue negotiate, but you'll have to change, especially the part on the seabed mining in a radical way. The convention made an attempt for a year and a half or two to meet at least some of the concerns of the American delegation, of the new American administration. And at the end, it was felt by the leaders of the conference, in particular by its president, Ambassador Tommy Cole of Singapore, that this would be a futile exercise and it was much better to close it by adopting the, the convention. And of course, this could not happen by consensus, it happened by vote, by an overwhelming vote taken here in New York in April 1982, in which four states voted against, including the United States, and if I remember well, a little more than a dozen abstained. Most of the, those who abstained in April voted uh, signed the convention later in December of that same year. But still, there was a basic disagreement on one of the 17 chapters of the convention, the part 11 on seabed mining. This part was, of course, uh, the one that the Reagan administration didn't like and also many industrialized states of Europe said we signed the convention but we will not ratify it until the part on seabed mining is made uh, more acceptable. And indeed uh, after the opening to signature there was a long time, 12 years, in which states met regularly in Kingston, Jamaica, under the aegis of the Preparatory Commission for the International Seabed Authority and the International Tribunal for the Law of the Sea. The task of this meeting of parties was just to make, uh, to prepare the regulations that would permit these two institutions to function the day the convention entered into force. Efforts were made to use this as a pretext for introducing changes that would, made, that would make the convention acceptable to everybody. But this was not the appropriate fora, even though very useful talks were held. At one moment in 1990, the Secretary General of the UN saw that in a relatively short time, maybe a few years, the convention would enter into force because ratification was slowly coming in. But the likelihood was that it would come into force for a group of developing countries with no industrialized countries or maybe just one, Iceland. There <laughs> was a rather small one who had ratified the convention. And this was seen as a very dangerous thing because this convention con conceived as universal with coming to force as not representative of the 
world opinion as a whole and would be ratified by states that did not have the resources to finance the new institutions that were to be created. So the Secretary General at the time, Ambassador Perez de Cuellar, started called on the ambassadors in New York of the most concerned countries and told them we have here one of the biggest and most important achievements of the United Nations in the legal field. It would be dramatic that it failed at this stage. I know that the difficulties that block its wide ratification are in one part and not even all of one part, just about a few subjects. Please do something. And he started a process of informal negotiations uh, with at the beginning, a restricted number of interested delegations and later uh, with everybody interested. And through this work came out a list of the difficult points and also of the ways to mend them. And the mending was to change in some points and in other points to interpret in an authoritative way part 11. Part 11 was radically changed through these negotiations which uh, gave birth to an agreement on the implementation of part 11 which was adopted in 1994 and which became an integral part of the Law of the Sea Convention. All states that would ratify the Convention thereafter had to ratify the Convention together with the Implementation Agreement of 74. The states who had ratified the Convention before could, if they wished, and they were, uh, let's say, invited to do so, ratify also the new agreement. A few did not do it, and still at the present date, a few have not done it. But basically, everybody behaves as if the convention uh, is composed of these two instruments. This, the adoption of this implementation agreement, uh, had as a result that industrialized states didn't insist on their objections. And this permitted to most of them, all the Europeans and also Australia, New Zealand and later Canada, ratified or acceded to the convention. Which, in, when it came into force or a few months later, uh, had as between its states parties, states from all continents and all points of view. The only lacuna then and now remains the absence of the United States of America from the list of states bound by the Convention. Notwithstanding the fact that all administrations in Washington since the adoption of the 1994 agreement have indicated that they favor ratification by the United States, notwithstanding the fact that 
commissions, committees in the Senate have expressed favorable view, but then the leadership of the Senate has always felt that to submit the convention to a vote in the Senate might not bring about the majority of two-thirds that is necessary. So, in fact, a minority of senators are blocking the convention, or at least are creating a situation in which the administrations, one after the other, have not dared to push the uh, text to a vote. This notwithstanding, the convention has been in terms of parties bound by it a huge success. At present, there are more than 160 states parties to the convention, plus the European Union. All the member states of the European Union are parties to the convention, but also through specific provisions of the convention, the European Union as such, as far as matters under its jurisdiction and its competence, in particular fisheries, but not only fisheries, is a party to the convention. And indeed, the, the European Union is particularly keen on this. Uh, whenever the European Union enlarged its membership after the adoption of the Law of the Sea Convention, it put as a condition for accession to the, to the European Community and then Union that the acquis, including the Law of the Sea Convention, became law for the new entrants. So they had to ratify, perhaps before, sometimes after, but at present all the 23 member states are also parties to the Convention together with the Union. This should be enough for recapping the history of the development of codification of the Law of the Sea and in particular the third conference on the Law of the Sea.